Hey there, I'm Christopher Schoenwald, and welcome to Life as a, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. As we plow ahead and through the 21st century, it's hard not to recognize all the change taking place around us. I mean, you could consider social, economic, and even cultural transformations occurring. However, the most talked about issue may very well be the environment. Research, data, and experiential anecdotes all point to a world here on Earth that is rapidly deteriorating, and will continue to do so until we make drastic changes to the way we live and operate. Initiatives aimed at sustainability, you know, they have begun and are underway. Conversations are being had, companies are instituting new business models, and awareness is being raised. However, even the most optimistic would admit we are far, far from a point of turning things around just yet. Well, on today's show, we're joined by an individual who, through his company, is intuitively leveraging a naturally occurring resource to upend a traditional, environmentally unfriendly manufacturing process and practice to affect positive change. All right, welcome to the show. So Ryan Hunt is a scientist and technology entrepreneur commercializing innovative solutions in the fields of material science, biotechnology, and sustainability. And he's also the co-founder and COO of Schloop, a sustainable footwear manufacturing and innovation center in Meridian, Mississippi. With a background in physics and bioengineering from the University of Georgia, he co-founded an enterprise based around converting, and get this, algae grown from environmental restoration into sustainable materials for use in consumer products. And over the past 12 years, Ryan has been enabling brands from all over the world to incorporate algae biomass into their products, which improves the sustainability metrics. And through that process, he intimately learned about the challenges and roadblocks for commercializing and scaling sustainable materials into the real world via global supply chains dominated by countries like China and Vietnam for footwear and most consumer products. And the frustration over wanting to enact sustainably-minded change but being stymied by what he saw as broken supply chains regarding the introduction of new and innovative material drove Ryan to create an all-new enterprise, one which is focused on reshoring sustainable and innovative manufacturing back to the U.S., so as to enable levers of change to actually be put into action. His own struggles led to realizations that other businesses and individuals were probably facing similar challenges when wanting to build in new, sustainable, circular materials and technologies into their products. Thus, he founded Schloop, a company and footwear factory built on the ideal of enabling sustainable materials and circularity to be effectively integrated into supply chains in a way that brands can not only access it, but also afford it. So with all that stated, Ryan, I mean, it's great to uh, to welcome you to the show. How are you doing? Thank you, Christopher. Fantastic to be here. Looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, as am I, as am I. Well, I do have the first segment lined up here, and it's something called Coloring Wikipedia. And as my listeners would know, it's a segment where I just kind of read off a definition of the industry or sometimes the actual profession itself of what the guest is involved with. And I do it for a few reasons. One, it brings everybody up to speed on what it, you know, what the world that person lives within is like. And other times too, I mean, Wikipedia is on with the definition, it hits, and other times it's just flat out off. And then finally, I think, you know, we as individuals, we could hold the same titles, but sometimes we just put our own stamp on things and the way you run your business or the way you operate, it's just going to be different than the way somebody else might have this exact same title. So that vantage point also kind of offers this interesting sort of discussion point. So with all of that in mind, I do have you down here for sustainable business. And I'm going to forewarn you, this is a bit of a wordy definition from Wikipedia. So <laughs> let me read that off for you. And uh, after that, you can consider, oh, well, while you're listening, you can consider, you know, all your experiences and then uh, we can go from there. Does that sound good? Sounds good. All right. So here we go. Sustainable business. A sustainable business or a green business is an enterprise that has minimal negative impact or potentially a positive effect on the global, local environment, community, society, or economy. 
a business that strives to meet the triple bottom line. They cluster under different groupings, and the whole is sometimes referred to as green capitalism. Often sustainable businesses have progressive environmental and or human rights policies. In general, business is described as green if it matches the following four criteria. One, it incorporates principles of sustainability into each of its business decisions. Two, it supplies environmentally friendly products or services that replaces demand for non-green products and or services. Three, it is greener than traditional competition. And four, it has made an enduring commitment to environmental principles in its business operations. Very wordy, as I said. What do you think? First take. <laughs> well, I, the most important word in that entire description, in my opinion, is the focus on impact. If you look at the an enterprise uh, that's a sustainable business, it has an impact. And so what is an impact? How do you measure an impact? An impact on what? And, and so I think that's really where, for uh, in my experience, what it comes down to is how do you measure and quantify the positive impact, and how do you communicate that to your shareholders, your stakeholders, your customers, your employees, and how do you inspire people by reducing impact? So yeah. for me, impact is key, and it's one of the reasons why we like algae so much is that it is one of the most uh, productive organisms on the planet in terms of turning sunlight into biomass. And mm. through that process, it dramatically reduces the impact on climate change, on water pollution, uh, on ecosystem health. So it can be used in a variety of ways that can improve the ability uh, of a business to produce a, a lower impact on society. Yeah, yeah. As you well know, this is the second year, the second guest I've had on this program with a background in algae. You know, the person you know, Scott Fulbright, you know, was also on the show. And one of the things that he brought up in that conversation I thought was really interesting, and I think it speaks to the point that you were just you know, raising there, is this, this notion of storytelling, putting it out there in such a way that people can digest it and understand it and use that information to propel things forward. And I think that's a big you know, part of it. The metrics certainly play into that as that word and that, that notion of impact and what can be done. So I really like that. I think that's a really great insight right out of the gate here. In terms of, you know, back to the definition here, was there anything else that you'd maybe like to add to it perhaps? Or Well, I think that in today's age, there's been a massive push by corporate America to focus on what's called ESG, environmental social governance. And so the bigger companies now, I believe, are paying more attention to these green practices. And they've been talking the talk for a while, but now there's like policies and safeguards in place to ensure that they're actually like doing something. It's not just the marketing team saying awesome things about their company or brand, but behind the scenes, there's actually some teeth behind it, like going in and, and measuring are they selecting materials that are more environmentally friendly? Are they using more energy efficient manufacturing facilities or uh, or office complexes, LED lighting, solar power, you know, all these different ways that you can reduce the impact. But th I think one of the challenges that a lot of the companies have is that you can only change what you can control. And for these big companies that are like for you know, the guys that I work with, these big brands, you know, they have a big impact in their in their own right, right? They've got tons of employees, they may have thousands of employees, they've got buildings, they've got HVAC, they've got lighting, they've got commuting and all this stuff that is involved with their business, but that doesn't even include manufacturing. And a lot of times manufacturing is happening through contract services, but the majority, the vast majority of it is under contract with third-party factories, typically in China, Vietnam, somewhere in Asia. So those scope three emissions, as they're called, are these kind of outside the box emissions for manufacturing typically aren't directly managed by the brands. So they would love to see improvements in, in reducing impact, but it's not always their factory. It's maybe another, it's a Chinese factory or it's a different, different companies' uh, operations that they're trying to influence. So that's where it gets challenging is, can you be sustainable? Can a company be sustainable if their entire supply chain isn't sustainable? And th this is where I think some of the big challenge comes in of going back to how do you quantify it? And yeah. can you quantify your improvements? Can you quantify your baseline? Can you actually reach back and encourage your factory partners to do the right thing and, and use more renewable energy or you know, have less scrap or treat pay their people a decent, fair wage, you know, these types of things? 
Yeah. Yeah. And quite frankly, it's that point right there. I mean, there's so many different things that I'm really excited about this conversation for, but that is one of them. And I know that's going to be coming down the line later on is that point because it raises so many interesting, you know, points within itself of, you know, I think this, this notion of circularity and sustainability, and people are certainly talking about it. Businesses like yourself are being built around it, but we still are at this point where these structural issues are in place. Like you said, manufacturing side where like things are just out of people's control on those issues. And unfortunately, like that's, well, probably the biggest aspect of the whole business oftentimes, especially if it's a product that's being put out to market, right? If you, know, you can do all these other things once the product is completed, maybe how it's delivered, you can kind of build in these policies on that side of things. But if it's being created in China or in Vietnam in places where maybe they don't have these initiatives put in place or these policies put in place to be more environmentally friendly or you know minded, well, yeah, that, that's definitely not going to be having the impact that we all want to be having. And it's not going to be driving forward you know, the, the agenda that we want to be advanced. So it's something I'm really excited to, to get into in a little bit, but uh, I'm glad you brought that up really early on. It's a, a nice teaser for uh, for a question coming down the line. <laughs> in terms of, I guess, your business right now, uh, what what would be a, a typical day or week for you right now? I mean, I'm sure you're quite busy with Shaloop, and it's still early stages with that company. You know, you, you've had another one, I know, in that. Yeah. Time. The day to day, well, there's a lot of travel recently. It's 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 uh, it's very very busy. But I would say it's 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 very dynamic. You know, some weeks there's different priorities. You know, in in the past, pr- prior to the work with Schloop, when I was you know full time at Algix and helping with develop and commercialize these bloom sustainable materials, there you know my focus you know is more about working with these global brands that want to make improvements to their supply chain in terms of the types of materials they use and the in the use of sustainable materials or renewable materials, bio-based materials, recycled materials, all these types of, of things. And so there it was more like working with the designers that wanted to create something. They're looking for some some options for their product. And then it was basically at night working with China and the factories, you know, navigating, okay, which factory are we going to use? You know, yeah. what what compound do they need? What's their performance specification? What color do they have? How much volume do they have? Mm-hmm. You know, how are we going to, when are they going to start? Like all these kind of supply mm-hmm. chain related questions. So for maybe five or six years now, I've, you know, been very buried in that part of the, of the business. Not so much the fun part of like designing the shoes, but more like, okay, the shoes design, the designer wants to use a, a foam that has a better environmental story or environment a lower environmental impact with it, how do we actually make that a reality for the brand and, and can certify it and quantify it and deliver them something that they can market to the consumer in the US or area in Europe? So that exposed me to a lot of the challenges that us and other sustainable or innovative technology material companies uh, are having or might have or could have in the future where it's not so easy to, to mm. get a new material integrated into a legacy supply chain you know the, the factories there like to buy the materials they've been buying from their customer from their vendors that they have relationships with in china the last thing they want to do is turn over business to some unknown american company that has higher vat higher taxes higher duties higher yeah. shipping rates you know it's just it, for them it, it's more cost and you know yeah. cut to them cost is 100 the enemy so that so that was the the one big challenge that, I, that that I've seen, and looking at how to solve that, it's not so easy because mm-hmm. the entire industry over the course of decades, particularly around sneakers, I mean, it's like China's it, man. I mean, that's right. where that's where all the expertise is gone. That's where all the development's gone. The government in China has invested big, big money for a long time, and the and the, and the local entrepreneurs there have. So I mean, they have towns built on shoes, you know. Right. So. Uh, the amount of wealth that's been amassed over the past decades on behalf of the big, you know, the big brands, right? The Nikes, the Adidas, all the big names you've heard of, yeah. they're all getting made in the same cities and the same factories that aren't, you know, don't have the, the logos on them, right? They're, these are independent factories that make all this stuff. So so that was a realization, I mean, especially going there and seeing these factories, seeing the scale they operate. It's in some cases, it was probably the most mind boggling thing was like the the sheer number of hands that touch like a pair of shoes. A lot. Mm, really? And so if we're going to make this 
operation circular, like we've got to start doing some of this in the U.S. again, or yeah. you know, closer to the consumer, whether it's Europe, whether it's South America, whether it's U.S. or wherever, we've got to decentralize some of our manufacturing capabilities. How are we going to do that? Can footwear be decentralized? Can you actually yeah. make shoes, process shoes, and recycle them in an area close to where they're being consumed at? And so mm-hmm. the way China does it currently, I would say it's going to be tough. Uh, it's it's not so easy. There's a lot of moving there's parts. no incentive, really. Right? And there's no, yeah, there's no real incentive to do it. It's just cheap. But when you start looking at circularity, you need to be able to capture that product at the end of its life cycle and bring it back into the factory setting to recycle it. You can't rely on a third-party recycler to do that, and we can't send our trash back to China anymore. Mm-hmm. So those two issues combined mean that really no brand has a has a very solid circularity story if they want to turn their products back into shoes. They can maybe turn them into playground mats or running you know uh, surfaces or whatnot, but but getting them back into a shoe factory is really hard when mm-hmm. all the shoe factories are in Asia. This doesn't yeah. make economic sense. So, yeah. so that was one of the main things I would say that jumps out at me. Mm, yeah, it's an interesting point too. I mean, for those factories as well, there's no incentive. When I said incentive, I meant incentive for those factories, like you alluded to earlier. No incentive for them really to do it either. You know that they have their formula down. This is what we do. <laughs> you know the volume that they're pumping this stuff out. Why are they going to shift it and change for you know smaller companies as well? It's just it doesn't make sense. So it's a structural issue that's in place there. It's a big hurdle. It's this big massive roadblock, and I think that's what makes what you're trying to do. All the more compelling. Hopefully, we're we're hitting that point now where the the public awareness of these issues is shifting and changing. That these types of things are amounting to demand. You know, demand from a consumer like, no, I want to know how this product that I'm going to be purchasing is being made for one, and then two, how it's going to be driven back into the system. Hopefully, we're getting there, and hopefully, within this conversation, to kind of get a better sort of pulse on all of that, because I'm sure you know a lot more about that than. Uh, and certainly myself and, and probably a lot of listeners too. So well, and, and just to answer your question about the day of the, the day of my average life today, it's it's been yeah. less less about working with the factories in Asia, more about okay, how can we reshore this and do yeah. it manufacturing in a way that we can we can actually pull it off in the US. And so that's we've been working with new technologies, new materials, training up new staff, you know, fi- trying to find people who still have the art and skills of like handcraft and sewing yeah. and stitching and woodwork or, you know, working with their hands. So, you know, we're really trying to bring back a new supply chain. And sorry, that's where Schloop comes into all of this. Is that and correct? That's Shloop, yeah. So the Schloop factory is a sustainable innovation and manufacturing company where we're building our first facility here in Mississippi, same hometown as balloon materials or Algex. And we're taking those materials now, instead of shipping it all to China, we're trying to source it along with other types of sustainable materials like vegan leathers, uh, recycled fabrics, uh, different recycled rubbers and foams, et cetera, and actually pull those all together to make finished goods here, as opposed to having to ship it all to Asia and then and, and receive it back as a finished good. Awesome. Yeah. That's such a compelling story. Yeah. I love it. In so, terms of, I guess, maybe shifting into a new segment here, we can continue on this back and forth, but the second segment is a Q&A discovery. And maybe you could rewind a little bit here just to gain some uh, some added perspective on all of this. Now, I know, you know, of course, in what you're doing right now, you know, a lot of entrepreneurship, a lot of business work, but I understand your early beginnings were within science, a completely different realm, obviously, you know, and I'd like to know how you sort of transitioned from that world into the world of business. Like, was it a moment there? Was there some formative experience? Was there someone in your family perhaps involved in business or, you know, a, a gentle nudging from someone? I'd love to, to, to hear a little bit more about that. Well, yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm a pretty hardcore scientist. I'm a physicist and bioengineer, got degrees in both University of Georgia and just been fascinated with science my mm-hmm. whole life, particularly, yeah, kind of nature inspired technology. You know, biology and and physics always fascinated me all the way down to the quantum level. But I've also, you know, my mother was an entrepreneur, so I've always kind of had this itch to to just do my own thing and and try to develop and innovate new ideas and take them into bring them into the world. So I would find it insanely boring to like just have a day job where I'm just a cog in a in a, in a wheel of a big machine. I really want to create new things that haven't existed yet and that solve major problems for humanity. And, and, and I think about these problems and these technologies really on that kind of first fundamental principles, applying physics, you know, math, fundamental understanding of a problem 
and uh, and looking at it from that regard. And I think that's kind of where the business side comes from. At the end of the day, it's all those numbers and spreadsheets yeah. and math. So there's a lot of, of, of carryover between basics of, of physics, basics of engineering, basics of business models, and uh, and then pulling all that all together into something that's like, all right, this is compelling enough that we can actually create a marketing story around it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Was there any particular aspect that when you did transition from science into entrepreneurship and into business that you kind of had to, to skill up on a little bit? That was a bit of a, a tougher transition for you? Yeah. 12 years later, it happens every day. <laughs> There's always new, <laughs> yeah, new things to learn that you didn't know how to do. I mean, yeah. yeah so I, mean, I was the case where it was like I was in grad school doing a bunch of research. Wasn't exactly sure how it was going to all play out, but it was, you know, looking at algae-based biofuels in like 2007, 2008, 2009. And so I, I could have been hired by a, you know, a, a, a tech startup out of Silicon Valley. That's probably yeah. was the most likely scenario for me. When it came down to it, I just, I needed to do things the way that I felt they needed to be done. So I did, when I, when I finally realized where I think the opportunity was, it didn't align with any of the companies in the space that I was aware of. Yeah. So it was like, all right, if this algae material play is going to work, nobody else is doing this, I, you know, let's do it ourselves. And so mm-hmm. I joined forces with a partner, the co-founder of Algex mm-hmm. named Mike Van Brunen. He's yeah. the, also an engineer, but was also a business guy. Had been in business for 20 okay. plus years and had that business, you know, exp- yeah. experience yeah. and could raise the funds. And, you know, he was a little older than me. So he had more credibility when we go talk to an early investors. So, so we kind of had the perfect pairing of like, I was the scientist, he was the business guy, we're yeah. working together to solve this common problem. And from an investor's perspective, that's perfect, right? You've kind of got both sides covered there. And you have to, yeah. So if anybody's out there thinking about starting a business, you really, if you're a scientist, you need to find a business person. If you're a business person, you need to find a scientist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I really think they, they pair well so together because everybody kind of keeps everybody accountable, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally, totally. Okay. In terms of the the whole study of algae i mean initially you know when you were in school i'm, I'm, I'm guessing this started in university perhaps I mean, maybe sooner i guess i don't know but wh- where did that come from was it something that was just put on your plate like i think when i was speaking with scott and he'd mentioned how you know, he grew up in michigan and he was in he was interested in marine biology but he's in the middle of michigan i mean the oceans aren't exactly all that close so what do you do? Yeah. What do you do? Well, it was algae blooms is what he studied, you know, when you're you're there close to the Great Lakes like that. So, you know, in terms of you, like what, what brought you into the world of algae in the first place? So mine's a funny story. Mine's, it was direct experience in college. I got really into saltwater aquariums. I had five uh, reef tanks in my college apartment oh, wow. and had a bunch of different creatures and different ones, I had lionfish and eels and all this kind of stuff. Well, yeah. the common denominator was when you feed these organisms, these animals, these creatures, you get nutrients, an abundance of nutrients in the water. And if you right. don't filter and, and clean the water <laughs> over time, it gets yeah. so challenging and you end up with, with accumulation of nitrogen basically in your water. And so the, I was daily, I was just battling these algae blooms in my fish tanks for like months and months and years. I mean, it went yeah. on for a long time. And, you know, and, and you could do a major clean out. Like I'd go in, I'd clean the water, I'd scrub the rocks, I'd clean, I'd suck all the algae, I'd skim it out with nets. I mean, it's been hours trying to clean these yeah. fish tanks. Yeah. And then a day or two later, it was like, I didn't even, I wasn't even there. Back at, yeah. So I started getting like, well, wait a second, this stuff grows so fast. I can clean it all out in like a day it's back. Like there's something, something's got to be there. What's something's got to be here. Right. So, that, so, yeah. I, so I did, I did a little bit of research on the internet. It's, it's like 2005, 2006. Yeah. I was, I think I was Googling, maybe it was Yahooing. I don't know. It wasn't AOL news. I know it wasn't that, right? But it was, it was going in and it was, I found that the, the uh, federal government of the U.S. had published almost 25 years worth of research that mm. they did on the aquatic species program. It was like a 300 page report from like the mid nineties. And it was decades of government level led research on turning algae into biofuels. So this report had an enormous amount of information in it, and it basically laid out a great case to where we can harvest biomass from algae at a rate that's way faster than any plant. It grows faster than trees. It grows faster than you know 
corn, then wheat, like all these other plants, doesn't even compare. Like it's not even the same order of magnitude. It's like 10 times faster, 100 times faster than trees. So that growth rate was like, all right, that's clearly if we're ever going to run the planet off of something that's not fossil fuel based, then this has got to be it. And then I did even more research and found that it was like, oh, well, duh. The out the fossil fuels, the petroleum that we suck out of the ground is actually yeah. ancient algalooms. <laughs> so the whole planet for the past 150, 200 years has already been kind of powered by ancient algae blooms. That's crazy. And we're just pulling it, we're just digging them up. Like yeah. Yeah. then why couldn't we just use algae blooms from today? Right, 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 right. To, 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 to power the world. So that would to me was like, all right, this is totally doable. It's just a matter of technology, scale, and investment. Is, is yeah. really the, is really the path. So not that's an easy path, but like those things are doable. Yeah, yeah. I love that story for a couple of different reasons. Like one, it just, I mean, if you're, if you've got your eyes open, you know, first of all, you know, in recognizing these things and starting to think a little bit critically, you know, it's, it's funny. It's funny how an experience like that can just shift and change your entire life, the trajectory of your entire life. Like you've got a life built on this now, right? Business is built on this and it all sort of- My whole there, life is around know? this idea. <laughs> My entire yeah. life is based on this idea of algae, basically. Yeah. 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 And it started just kind of working with with your own tanks at home and being annoyed by it. Most people just be annoyed by it all. Maybe just give up, like, screw this. Like, I'm just getting rid of it all. <laughs> Many people you, have. You, Many people yeah, have. Yeah, yeah. right. And, 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 and a little bit of thought has just done. shifted. I'm done with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's a, that's a great story. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I mean, there's so many different areas to go into, I suppose. And you've already spoken to this point already. But if we could, I would like to maybe dive back into it. I know we're kind of jumping all over the place right now. But this notion of the present, where you're at right now, you know, and recognizing, again, these manufacturing issues, these these roadblocks is what I kind of let off with. Maybe you could speak to that point just a little bit more, if you could, in terms of how you're going about things right now to kind of avoid all of that or to give options for companies that don't want to plug into those traditional systems or traditional supply chains? Well, the, you know, the system's really tough right now because, you know, we we also uh, started a small little shoe brand a couple of years ago just to see what it would be like yeah. to, to, to go through the process from the other end, right? We were mm-hmm. selling pellets to these factories. What's it like being a shoe footwear brand trying to make a shoe and, and, and use the material? Yeah. So turns out it's really hard. <laughs> the, mm-hmm. you know, the system is is really like slant the tables are slanted in a way that benefit the really big brands mm. makes sense right like, yeah. like for them if you're a huge brand that has a big brand name a factory in asia is going to want your business they are going to give you favorable terms they're going to finance molds for you you know that you might be able to avoid outlaying tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of dollars it's the volume that right? is the initial investment required just to get the tooling to make the sole of the shoe that's really the the right. the, the the crux of it comes down to like, how are you going to build the base of the shoe, like the sole mm-hmm. of the shoe and yeah. the capital cost to, to build the, the molds can be tens of thousands of dollars, you know, and, and typically have lots of, lots of different sizes and widths yeah. and, and different versions of it. So you could easily spend hundreds of thousands of dollars before you even made the first pair of shoe. Wow. Or even maybe for make the first sole, wow. right? Like, so, and now granted, you don't do it like that. You go in through and you typically make, you know, two or three or four molds. You might spend yeah. ten dollars or $20,000 up front in a sample size to make sure that this is the style you want to go with. But this is just um, for one shoe, right? Like one. That's just for one. That's just yeah. one shoe of one size. So yeah. imagine, okay, now you, you make, you spend 20 grand, you got a sample, like one shoe that you go and show people. Yeah. Are they going to want to buy it? Hopefully. Yeah. If they do, then you got to go back and you got to wait another two months. And I mean, typically these, these cycles are 18 months to 24 month cycles to go from like an idea, a product creation, all the way to actually manufacturing yeah. it in China. Yeah. But then you got to go back and spend, you know, eight times that much on new molds. So yeah. that's really the challenge is the barrier to entry is quite high unless yeah. you're already an established footwear brand or you have a lot of cash. Yeah. yeah. And so for the new designers, the new innovators, people have kind of, it's like, it's either really hard to do and you got to like go to China and work some magic and maybe you can get a sample made for free by a brand if you know somebody like that's kind of the the only way you can really or you gotta you gotta pay for it you got the money to do it so um so for us i think that's been one of the the big elements of of like the realization is that if we can lower the barrier to entry one of the key parts are these is the tooling and so our innovative process has been let's flip the script on that let's look at a way to reduce or potentially eliminate all tooling costs and so that's what we've been focused on is looking at technologies that take steel tooling 
and instead use different types of molding processes, not injection molding, not compression molding, yeah. um, but using 3D printed tooling and kind of clever ways of, of replicating the tool with at low temp yeah. lower temperature yeah. and making a very low cost prepare it from the beginning. So whether you're doing, you know, for us, it's like it's probably a couple pennies per, per, per mold. Hmm. But you pay that whether that's one shoe or whether that's one million shoes. Wow. So just completely disrupting, well, attempting to disrupt the industry by attempting to disrupt it. So normally we look at it as like, well, I got to spend a hundred grand to make yeah. one shoe, or I got to yeah. spend a hundred grand to make a make a million shoes. Yeah. But if I amortize over the million shoes, then it's not such a big number. It's back to the mm -hmm. penny level. But you got to have hundred mm -hmm. grand up front to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I gotcha. What what drew you to I guess this whole aspect of shoes in particular? Like what what was it? Oh, about that's a that? that's a good one. Was not the trajectory. We were trying to make flower pots and mulch films and agricultural things that we thought yeah. algae would be good in from like a scientific perspective. But then again, why you need the science and the business, we quickly realized that those commodities aren't the right thing to go after first. I mean, maybe eventually we can get there. But what we identified was that in order to have pull from the customer in order for the customer to really want your product you need to offer them something that they need okay. and you know a, a maker of a flower pot doesn't really get any benefit from yeah. putting some algae in it really i mean it, it's yeah. it maybe something there but it's marginal a big yeah. footwear brand that bases their entire business on marketing and their mm -hmm. brand and their mm -hmm. sustainability objectives those types of companies are going to be much more interested in investing in companies or materials or technologies that would help them promote or improve their, their, their product. Yeah. So we probably in 2016, we made a pretty major pivot as a company at Algix. We mm -hmm. said, all right, we're going to stop focusing on these commodity things while they yeah. may work, while they may be interesting, while they may make sense. No one really wants to pay for it. We got to mm -hmm. focus on corporate brands that are maybe even publicly traded because the publicly traded brands are, are under even higher scrutiny to yeah. do sustainability and ESG and all those elements that are good for us. Yeah. And they want to talk about these kind of things. That'll help yeah. us get our name out. We can get our word out of what we're trying to do. Yeah. So that was probably the main thing that we realized. Mm. Yeah. And they also, the other thing I love about it too, I mean, is a byproduct perhaps of it all is that, I mean, it's, it's a scale issue as well. I mean, who doesn't have footwear, right? I think mean, obviously we all do. And it's something there too, that like that offers impact, right? At the end of the day, that offers impact if you can advance this thing forward, you know, like that that's where you can really start to make or see some differences, see some change taking place that you can be proud of. You can, yeah, the other cool yeah. thing has been like when we were at, um, like, so earlier in the pro the journey, we were doing biofuels, right? Yeah. So you go to a conference, imagine trying to show everybody what your biofuel is like. You got some pictures, maybe. You, yeah. you can't drive around, you can't fly with gallons of diesel fuel in your bag. <laughs> right, like you wouldn't right. want to, like what, you know, nobody wants to see <laughs> diesel fuel, like, you yeah. know. But all of a sudden, when you start making sh like shoes, you have, you have a consumer product, cool, it's stylish, yeah. you're combining art, science, storytelling, material. I mean, yeah. it's like all these totally, yeah. that's what we like about the new Schlup factory is that it's it's more than just like a sneaker factory. Like mm -hmm. this is not really just a sneaker factory. This is like mm -hmm. a state-of-the-art innovation center where we're providing both an opportunity for brands to come and understand how they can incorporate and where they can incorporate these different sustainable materials into their products see those products being made, educate the consumer on these products, maybe even invite the, the consumer in to even buy directly. We, like, we may eventually even be able to sell directly to the public That's mm. something in our kind of longer term strategy. But when we when we have all this in one place, it's like we've got a lot of automation, robotics, sustainable materials, sustainability, uh, life cycle assessment, uh, you know, design, uh, you know, art and design. So it's you're kind of combining all these things into one creative yeah. hub that you never know what's going to come out. You might find some really amazing things might be developed here that you know you wouldn't necessarily be able to to conjure that up or to, to, to mm -hmm. get to that level of pushing the boundary. If you're just like working with a contract factory in China. Right, 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 right. So much possibility. I think that's the word that I kind of keyed in on there. No, I love it. Yeah. I think it's really exciting what you're doing and uh, again, offers so much promise in so many different areas. So yeah, super exciting. Maybe this might be a nice sort of point to transition into a new segment here as well, Ryan, something called a water cooler story. And you've already shared a bit of a story already, but I'm, I'm wondering if, uh, if I've, you've got something else for us today. Yeah, I would say the well, we talked about the the major stories, I think, are like the epiphanies of of mass yeah. manufacturing in Asia, where like all of our products come out of China. And yeah. when you go and try to look at 
or I shouldn't say all, not everything, but there's just so much production that's happened in China. And then going to China, especially in footwear, you look at the the wealth that's been amassed in, in Asia. Yeah. And you come back home, you know, I live in Mississippi and I feel like I used to feel like I was coming back to like a like a third world country, like being in Shanghai or being in you know, Hong Kong or, or Shenzhen or, or you know, Dongguan or whatever. Mm-hmm. If you haven't like been to Asia or been to China or some of these places, like it's hard to really fathom the scale. And then coming back home to a 40,000 person little, little rural town, it's just like, it's so, yeah, it's, it's so interesting. Enough, yeah. So, so, you know, we've been, we've been trying to find a way to, to pull back some manufacturing and look at ways that we can do it in a way that actually is, is scalable. Mm. And so, you know, I would say that that's been our biggest challenge is really developing a process and identifying the right team that can pull all this together and get the right people in. The community though here has been really supportive. It's been really interesting as words kind of gotten out into what we're doing. We've been getting lots of serendipitous connections, people Mm -hmm. who could interestingly fit into what we're doing or have interest in what we're doing or can support us or help us. For example? So like, for instance, we've had people reach out uh, about uh, knitting programmers. We've had people reach out about you know, uh, different shoe collaborations, maybe the best way to put it, potential okay. customers, I guess, reaching out. Yeah. As the more we've talked to people, other companies, other brand, other footwear yeah. people in the footwear industry, pretty much everybody we've talked to wants to like work with, like work with us, right? Like everybody's all about this nice. idea of like, let's building yeah. some shoes, build shoes a little bit closer to home and yeah. do them in a way that's more environmentally friendly and, and, and measure and evaluate how, how, how we can improve the process. So that has been really exciting seeing the, the homegrown support that we've been able to get. And, mm-hmm. and I think if we can prove this system that if it can work here in Mississippi, I feel like we can replicate this in other parts of the country. Yeah. You know, maybe it's not going to work in LA or in some really, really high, high you know, expensive areas. I can work in Boston, but, but, you know, the South is becoming a big manufacturing area. A lot of the automotive companies are setting up massive right. factories here, like tire companies, et cetera. So from a manufacturing front, I think we're in a good position. But there, I think, is also opportunities to to take this technological model once we automate it to, we're not going to be able to automate everything. Like, there's still going to need to be people that are able to you know, touch and feel fabric. Um, right. I mean, it's just inevitable. There's going to be some of that. We can try to minimize it as much as possible. But but the more we minimize it, the more universal we can make it, the more that we can plug this thing in other places. And so for, for me, I guess, the epiphany was that, you know, this is, this is doable. It's like a decently high chance of success here. Yeah, I wasn't so sure when we started Algix that there was going to be like the chance of success at Algix was probably pretty low, right? Like we're going to okay. disrupt plastics with, with with algae seems kind of far fetched. But twelve years later, we now have 130 brands using algae in their products. So like, it's getting there. It's not there 100, but like we're heading the right direction. We just need to get we need to tip that scale into mass adoption. How do we convince these brands to not put us in one percent of the products, but put us in ten yeah. percent? That's yeah. like. A totally that's a totally different level than where we're at right yeah. now. We're at the kind of the one percent level, and so the the goal of Schloop is to say, hey, you know, yeah, we can put it in at one percent, or we can get a little tiny bit of penetration in Asia due to all these issues. It's hard to get a lot of penetration there, mm-hmm. but if we can do it ourselves and we can control it and we can minimize the cost and streamline the process, mm-hmm. then I think we can generate a lot larger positive benefit or a lot lower impact if we can control the entire process. And so like the the materials that go into a product make up about 30% of the environmental impact, okay. but the manufacturing process can make up like 60%. So I've been spending the past 12 years focused on like the 30% fraction, like what you start, yeah. what you make a product out of is a huge right. factor. Yeah, but also how you make that product <laughs> is a huge factor. It's a big one. So yeah. we were kind of addressing the what, but not the how. And with Schloop now, we've got the what, we're bringing in all the stale materials and we're looking at how do we dramatically improve how we make the product to lower the impact. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I mean, you have the the experience and the expertise on one side for sure with those 12 years and then starting to develop it on this other end. And yeah, that certainly does. I can see where that optimism would be coming from. You know, you have enough conversations with people, people getting on board, being interested and wanting to be part of this and coupling all of that sort of together yeah there, there, there's certainly opportunities there it would at least it would have seen yeah so that's that, that's certainly encouraging news from an outsider's perspective as well so i love that 
And this might be a nice transition point into the last segment here, crystal ball segment, as the name implies, we're usually looking towards the future trends, predictions, so on and so forth. Now, you raise an interesting point just in that that last segment there, you're talking about how brands themselves, you know, are, are fine with putting, you know, 1% of say some of their efforts into sustainability, perhaps or materials into their products, but getting it up to that 10% level is a whole it's a game changer, right? I'd love to know like where we're at on that in terms of like, are we getting closer to that tipping point of brands like going all in on this or are we still a little bit off on this? Like maybe, maybe a little bit more insight on that. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, this is a great question. I actually, I, I do have some insight on this and mm-hmm. this would all be public information, nothing confidential or proprietary that I'm sharing here today, but yeah. uh, a lot of the big brands uh, look at Adidas or Adidas, look at Wolverine Group, look at Calaris Group, uh, look at Nike. They have put out some pretty strong targets in terms of a minimum amount of recycled content in their products in the range of like 2025 to 2030. They, they all fall in that kind of, you know, probably five to t- next five to 10 year windows now. Okay. Whether it's convenient, whether they can be able to achieve these goals, you know, kind of what remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. But I would say that there's kind of two, there's two uh, camps. There's the, I want to say the camps because they're, they're not, they're not uh, mutually uh, exclusive. But one would be trying to maximize the recycled content of a shoe. So using things like recycled polyester, recycled yarns, recycled nylon, recycled foam or recycled rubbers, any sort of post-consumer or post-industrial feedstock that you're able to reuse and, and reprocess. The problem with that, with recycled, is that there's a limit. You know, you can typically get a pretty high level, but as you go higher and as you recycle it more, the properties degrade and yeah. a brand doesn't want to deliver a, a subprime product. So you got to have a, a good product. You got to be able to meet the specs. So there's a limit to how much recycled content you can do. But typically the brands that we're seeing are like, I would say minimum is maybe 20%. Your average is probably 50%. And some of the brands are trying to go 100%, which I mean, I don't know if they'll be able to do that, but that's kind of the, the, the goal. Yeah. So. I would say the recycled content goals are pretty strong in the market right now. The demand for the recycled raw materials is very high and the pricing is actually high because the collection of all the recycled goods isn't mature enough to really yeah. support this relatively rapid transition to this. I mean, it's only been in the past maybe five years that right. all these brands have made these commitments and shifted their production into it. So the supply chain has a fully caught up with the demand yet, the supply for the demand. And then the other kind of side of it is the bio-based, the natural. Mm. So instead of using recycled product, can we use a plant-based product or a, you know, a, yeah. a natural material that's not derived from a petroleum or a fossil fuel? And so that one is, I would say, almost a little bit tougher because you are ultimately either doing one of two things. You're either going through a complicated fermentation process where you're taking plants kind of feeding it into like the bio to like a biotechnology system where you're like mm. fermenting, extracting yeah. things from bacteria and like, like complications. Like, for example, like complications. Yeah. You're really building a massive, you know, fermentation vessel and like you're like, you're going to make beer or something like that uh, or, 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 you know, vodka or whatever. And you're using that ethanol as now a raw material in a chemical process. So there's people that take, like take ethanol and turn it into polyethylene, like plastic. Like that's mm-hmm. a whole massive industrial chemical refinery that you have to build to do that. So not cheap to set up, but they've done it in Brazil. It, it services the world at the moment for some of these uh, bio-based polyethylenes and EVA foams and stuff like that. There's also the idea of using the biomass as a natural filler, like, like or there's cork. Like there's different materials that you, you yeah. can either use a natural material like cork, or you can try to refine that material into something that's this like the same or very similar to a petroleum-based chemical. Okay. And so the more you refine it, the yeah. better the performance is and the more like plug and play it is mm-hmm. into the end of the supply chain, but mm-hmm. it's also more expensive. It's actually got a lower yeah. environmental impact now. Yeah. You know, you, you start you start raising a bunch of questions. Well, is it yeah. even is it is it really better to do it that yeah. way? Yeah. Uh, think corn ethanol in the US, corn ethanol kind of was a bit of a of a conundrum because on the one hand, it was a bio-based product. But on the other hand, the impact of making it wasn't actually all that great because all that went into it. Yeah. So yeah. you have to do those life cycle assessments to really figure out, is it is it worth it? Mm. Um, and so I, th- I think that's a big a big challenge with, 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 the, with the biomaterials. But I think they're going to get there. And the advantage of the biomaterials is as you're working on new chemistries, not trying to match old chemistry, 
but using bacteria, for instance, to produce its own types of biopolymers like PHA or PHB or some of these other ones, PBS, you're able to produce a biodegradable bio-based polymer that actually has really good properties or could have theoretically good properties. So, um, but it's expensive. (laughs) because <laughs> it's small it's because it's small scale at the moment yeah. so these yeah. are the battles that we basically between all of them the recycling is the lowest risk and like the most achievable so most right. of the brands have gone with that yeah. um so for us simplest to understand too we can get it's easy to understand and when they yeah. surveyed the customers they looked at like the marketplace and they did public surveys and said you know out of these five words sustainable recycled eco-friendly you know circular yeah. like what does the consumer resonate yeah. with and number one was recycling everybody understood what recycled means yeah no one quite understands what circular or sustainable really means right. and sustainable is vague it, it, you know, or it's just all-encompassing it's not a clearly defined term mm. circular is a similar term although i think it means a little bit something slightly different in terms yeah. of like being able to make a it's product a little clear i think kind but... of recycle it as well yeah it's it's so it's they're all so because the because the jargon isn't defined that's it's it's that's been right. okay well recycle is the easy thing to do let's go with that yeah yeah got it oh that's some really interesting insight and I think that's stuff that yeah I know I myself certainly would not have known until you kind of shared a lot of that there and I'm sure listeners as well will really enjoy that sort of deeper level insight into it all so I guess here's the final question I mean in terms of all of this like how optimistic are you that we're we're going to be seeing major transformations in the the next 5 years 7 years on all of this stuff Is it is it coming down the pipeline that quickly or like based on some of those challenges you just put forth that yeah we should be a little bit more patient No I think I think it's happening I think COVID in in many ways has ex- dramatically accelerated the the time frame here because Yeah it's illustrated uh, or demonstrated the like risks of doing everything in one place. And mm. I think also like well, there was a documentary that came out where the world's the, you know, the, the year the w- world stood still where it's like, Oh yeah, by the way, if humans didn't operate as much, by the way, the planet would actually m- makes like a dramatic improvement. Yeah. Right. So they were able to kind of show, Hey, all of a sudden we, we stopped commercial air, f- air flights for ever X period of days, like all this stuff cleared up. Right. So it's like, okay, humans have an impact on the planet. Like, that's pretty clear now. We got to do something about it. I'd say the only really hesitation is, you know, anytime you go into these booms and busts, there's the clean tech's always a tough one, right? And it's, it's mm. it hasn't survived a lot of the hard times very well because it tends to be low scale and expensive. And, yeah. you know, times of, 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 like right now, oil prices are high, right? Oil prices mm-hmm. go up, investment in alternative energy goes up. And then, yeah. You know, fast forward, you know, the thing that happened to us was in 2014, the fracking boom happened. You know, in 2006, 2007, gas was expensive. Yeah. There was tons of research money flowing into algae. I was part yeah. of that. I was being, I was yeah. getting funded for research. We started the company on it. There yeah. was a lot of enthusiasm about algae and technology. And then 2014, gas prices dropped to like $40 a barrel. And then all of a sudden, like nobody cares about, yeah. <laughs> about funding dried up. all of a sudden. Yeah. And all the the funding went away. The programs got closed out. I mean, literally, like by the place I used to work at, like it just it all evaporated, and the whole thing yeah. fell apart. That was the same reason. Remember when, I, when we opened this story was about the aquatic species program. The aquatic mm-hmm. species program started in the 1970s, and it was under the Carter administration. And so they were mm-hmm. looking at it. The National Renewable Energy Laboratory was doing this research on algae and solar panels and all this stuff. It went on for like almost 25 years. Mm-hmm. Well, it got canned in, like right after the first Iraq War with Desert Storm. We got free, basically really cheap oil out of Iraq. The price of oil goes super low as it's been in years. Yeah. And then boom, all the funding dried up for all, from all the algae research. They put a bow on it. They published the final report. And, that was that. and it didn't resurface until 2007. So it took 13 years later for it to come back. So my hope is that whatever you know weird fluctuations in the global market that's happening over the next you know one to five years, that you know we don't have a mm-hmm. major global recession. But... You know, I think the ESG is so far along now that, you know, yeah, there's going to be probably some clawback here and there, but the companies that have made these commitments are going to continue to try to, to follow through with their public statements, I hope. And we see the problem. It's not that like the companies don't want to do it. It's yeah. that it's not so easy to do it when everything that you do is based on these, these external factors. And so if mm-hmm. we can truly find a way to decentralize and reshore a more sustainable manufacturing model 
that uh, it implements things like artificial intelligence, automation, robotics, you know, green chemistry. Like we're doing a lot of really interesting green chemistry. Our factory is less of a, you know, industrial petrochemical injection molding factory like you might find in a car factory or in, you know, in China. Instead, we're actually building ours like a food science facility. Ours is like a massive bakery, a big kitchen, mm. and we're using all water-based chemistries. And you know, we're we're instead of using massive amounts of heat and, and pressure and chemical reactivity, we're using time and like dry and drying. Basically, our parts cure over overnight versus wow. us having to crank out more parts every second in this injection molder. So it's a very different philosophy. But the way that we're setting the factory up is quite clever because we can actually outproduce the same amount of parts compared to a traditional machine in our machine, even though it's a totally different design, it's a totally different concepts, totally different chemistry, but we're doing it in like a, a much simpler, cheaper way. That's actually faster. Hmm. Yeah. I love that. I mean, it's, yeah, it's some clever thinking, obviously, you know, I think I use the word intuitive, you know, in terms of your business, the way to describe that. And I think that perfectly sort of encapsulates that sort of feeling right there and, and, and approach to everything that you're doing right now. And also, too, I guess one last point here I'd like to add as well that kind of gives me hope, at least when I have these conversations, you know, with people like yourself who are involved and embedded within this, this sustainability driven movement, circularity, regenerative approaches, is I think like what makes it unique right now is that like outside of the businesses and all the opportunities of leveraging technology being there and, uh, you know, the opportunities that that presents is also like just this notion that like the general public, I think, and younger generations that are coming through are just getting more demanding uh, on these points. Like they're the ones that are like hitting up some of these brands on social media and saying, Hey, they're, they're going to call them out if they're not hitting, you know, certain mm. targets or if they're not producing the right type of products, because people are going to search it out, you know, that they're, they're going to find like, what's the impact of this or that sometimes it's misguided, sometimes it's spot on. But either way, it's keeping brands on their toes. And then ultimately, you know, for those companies themselves, like the, the, the stakeholders as well, like they have pressure there as well. You know, they, they put the, the pressure on the brands as well to succeed because some of these other companies, they're starting to shift and, and change their ways. And, and that has, a, has an effect on the whole company's trajectory ultimately, too. So, I mean, that for me, at least personally, sort of gives me hope on all of this. And that coupled with, you know, the conversations that we had today, it's been uh, it's really enlightening conversation. And uh, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and stories and everything you've shared today, Ryan. It's been really, really special. So thanks so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate that. Well, for those interested in learning more about Ryan and his company, of course, you can find him through his website, Schloop, and also Algix. And two, you can find him on LinkedIn. Hit him up there. And if you like today's show, of course, share. I mean, in light of the conversation we're having today, I think these types of conversations in terms of sustainability and whatnot, they need to be propelled forward. More people need to hear about this stuff. You know, it's only going to serve the interests of all of our needs moving forward. So share, share, share. And two, you can head on over to YouTube. We did launch a channel over there within the last year, which hosts the video conversations. And the cool thing there is we will have some imagery associated with the actual talk. So you can kind of take it in in a different manner. And also you can rate, review, and subscribe wherever you access your podcasts. And hey, that stuff does help way more than you can know. So please, if you have a few moments, I would love to, to you know read what you think of the show. You know, how are we doing? And then finally, please don't forget to tune into the next episode of Life as a, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living.